let's face it, it's Amherst College. It's a great product. Right. We have great outcomes here. When the guys graduate, our alumni network is a force. I've got 45 guys on the roster and all 45 guys chose Amherst College for the school, not the lacrosse program. That was the head coach of the Amherst Mammoths, Sean Woods. He's the guest on this week's Chasing the Goal podcast. Welcome to New England Lacrosse Journal's Chasing the Goal podcast, your destination for all things lacrosse. I'm your host, Kyle Devitt. Alongside me, the man, the myth, the legend, he just turned 60, Jack Piatelli. How we doing? Doing, doing pretty good, thanks. I don't feel 60, that's for sure, and you'd make me feel so much younger. Let me hang out with you from week to week. Really, a lot of gratitude. Really? Yes. Why is that? I have a lot of fun. Yeah. With this podcast, and you make it fun. I think one of the things I said... This week on Twitter, I was on the Ivy League call. I think I told you about this. And I, I was talking to the, the Penn head coach, Mike Murphy, who has been on the podcast. Go back in the archives and listen to that one. It's pretty, pretty good. Told him he was my, Mike Murphy in lacrosse, and he laughed. And then I asked him about his schedule, and I said, well, if your schedule was an album, it'd be all bangers and no skips. And I swear the whole Ivy League call just dropped out. Just completely was like, what happened? And someone asked me about it after. I was like, listen, man, if you're not having fun doing this, like, what are you doing? Right. What, do, what, do, what are you fun. doing in lacrosse if lacrosse is not fun for you? Like, I know that's, and I made fun of myself. I was like, I guess you could say I'm a professional because I dropped that line. And it's all in good fun. I think people take things way too seriously on social, which I think you've got a little, little issue with that. Do you not? Yeah. Problem with social is, Everybody has to get a trophy. Everybody's got to have highlight and this, that, and the other thing real quick. So I'm on social over the weekend and this is a commitment. I'm on there because of my business and I like to follow it a little bit. I'm not a crazy social media guy, but I ran into a couple of posts where players are not committed to these schools, but they posted that they're going to these schools in their lacrosse uniform. Yeah. and they're going, they're going to have an opportunity to maybe walk on, but they're not committed, but they still have to have a post because all their teammates are committed and have post. Well, it's, it's Johnny just, doesn't want to be left out, Jack. It's just sad. Just sad. No one wants to be left out. And I think that's part of the problem with that section of lacrosse. I don't really run into it all that much. Luckily, coaching where I coach and being around the programs that I'm around, we're, I think, very aware of our status in, in the lacrosse strata, let's say. That's, that's a NESCAC word, right? And, and with that, we're going to bring in our guest today, the head coach of the Amherst Mammoths, Sean Woods, entering his second season. Coach, how we doing? Doing great, Kyle and Jack. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that you're in a very interesting spot. Amherst has a, a history of winning, great, great school, great program coming up through the NESCAC. There's a lot of turmoil right before you came in. We don't really need to get into it. I think everyone kind of knows. But you were brought into a situation that, I mean, I remember writing the pieces last year where I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know who's going to be on this team. I don't know how he's going to do it. And somehow, <laughs> you really repaired that team and brought them up to a level that got you into the NCAA tournament, 7-3 and three in the NESCAC. I mean, it was a very impressive debut. What are some of the things you did on your, your first couple days in the job there at Amherst? 
Well, honestly, and, and thanks for that. It, it was a very new energy. 95% of the roster had, had actually never played an Amherst lacrosse game. They hadn't played lacrosse in two years. So the, the energy was just new, which I really embraced. And I think the guys really embraced it too. So we sort of restarted is kind of the word we use. Our culture on the field, off the field. We're very player driven around here. That's something I feel very strongly about. My assistant coach, Richard Carrington, feels strongly about. So we really embraced the newness of it all. And we engaged our guys a lot on what we wanted our program to look like, what we wanted our culture to look like, what we wanted our core values to look like. It was very player driven. So I would give all the credit to the guys. It was a really, really awesome group to be a part of. Obviously, we have a new group that we're in charge of as we look to start practice on Wednesday. But our guys did an incredible job of, of committing to a culture, committing to a, an on-field culture. And while we didn't end up with the result we wanted at the end of the year, I'm, I'm very proud of what we were able to sort of rebuild off the field. Yeah, and I think one of the other things to, to highlight really is you came into this job after 10 years building up Colorado College to, into a very successful national program, most of the time not even belonging to a conference, still finding ways to get into the NCAA tournament. So you're used to making something with your ability to bring in your culture. And I think with Amherst, I think people kind of just assume like, oh, it's a NESCAC school. He'll get NESCAC guys. He'll be able to get guys to come in and, and do all these things. But, you know, again, you're in a, a very strange situation where, yes, you'll have that. And you also have these other players. How did you find navigating that? Was it an easy transition from Colorado to Amherst? Was it, was it a one-for-one one or was it like one to 1.5? 1 <laughs> That's a tough question to answer. I would say it was challenging in a lot of different ways. It's, it's a lot, little bit more of a dynamic process here at Amherst in regards to recruiting and admissions, retention, all that stuff. But, but honestly, it, was, it wasn't that hard of a transition because Colorado College is a, a very good academic school. Obviously, Amherst is one of the best, if not the best, liberal arts school in the country. So having that benchmark to have to climb a little bit was a little bit of a, there was a little bit of a gap to close in on, but the admissions here has been great. My relationships with our club coaches and high school coaches throughout the country, that, that didn't change. So that transition of, of that part of it was, was relatively easy. And it's, and let's face it, it's Amherst College. It's a great product right. that we can recruit. We have great outcomes here when the guys graduate. Our alumni network is a, is a force. So we still have all the great recruiting tools. And I've got 45 guys on the roster and all 45 guys chose Amherst for the school, not the lacrosse program. That's why they're here. So in a lot of ways, it, it sort of was just getting going and getting here, boots on the ground, learning about the college, learning about the strengths, the support, the resources, and being able to, to communicate it well to recruits. And, and, and it, I think we, we put together two pretty, pretty good classes. We were in a bit of a, a, a jam when I got hired in August a couple of years ago in my first year. So that was a little bit of a scramble trying to piece together the class, but I really feel strongly that we we did a good job. And I think our 23 class is really strong as well. Coach, I believe last year you had fall ball. You were able to have fall ball. And this year they went back to the same rules, regulations, no fall ball for the NESCAC schools. What are your thoughts on that? Is that? Do you think that'll ever come back or is that something that we'll never see again? I know that a lot of the coaches enjoyed having the fall ball for a number of different reasons, especially for you, I would imagine being a new coach, being able to work with the players early and often in the fall. I don't think anybody benefited more from having a fall season than, than Sean Woods and Amherst lacrosse. We were able to come together as a family and 
get to know each other, build that trust on the field as well as off. So I, I love that opportunity that the NESCAC sort of gifted us last year. It was sort of mental health wellness reasoning why they let us have that. That's why I thought it was kind of interesting when they took it away. It was like, do they think that mental health went away or something like that? So I, do, I don't think it's coming back. I think the NESCAC is very, very, it feels very strongly that there shouldn't be a, a non-traditional season. There are indications on, like, they don't want to get in the way of a broad programs. They want to keep the focus very much on the academic. And I obviously support that very much, but I would love the opportunity to work with our athletes in the fall. It's, 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 it's a wonderful opportunity to, to, to not focus on wins and losses, to just focus on relationships and building that that trust as a team. As far as the future of it, I, I don't think it's coming back. Although the new legislation with the NCAA and the 114-day calendar, now they're allowing 24 practices in the fall as opposed to 16 at Division Three. Those changes might put a little pressure on, on the, the NESCAC presidents and ADs to take a look at it and revisit it. But, but as of now, if, if I were to answer, I'd probably say no. Well, I think it's important for the freshmen, especially, and you don't have to have any games in the fall. It'd be nice just to just two or three times a week. Again, let the seniors get to know the the freshmen incoming class. They get acclimated with, with playing and their teammates and the coaches and the whole system. I think it, it's just for the, for the play themselves. They, I think it's, it's not about lacrosse to your point. It's, it's mental health and just building relationships at, at, at college, your best friends end up being your teammates. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. I think that's the big bulk of takeaway from fall is always just the, the relationships you're able to build the trust level collectively, as well as individually, and then the coach player relationships. But, but we take, we take a different approach and we, we meet with our guys a lot in the off season individually, as well as as a team. And we try and try and come together in a lot of different ways. So, so we're not necessarily missing an opportunity to do that without fall ball. But, but I agree with you. I, I think the guys, these guys, I mean, like, like Kyle said in the beginning of the show, like there's so much greatness to our sport. There's so much passion. Everyone loves our sport. If you play the game, you love the game. And the guys just want to play the game that they love. And they're really hardworking. They're really ambitious. They like to be coached. They like to be coached hard. So these, these type of guys, I think, I think really would love, love the opportunity to be out there together, but they find different ways. So they, we have open lacrosse here. So they, they find ways to get on the field and play with each other. So it's, it's not all lost, but, but couldn't agree with you more that I think there's a lot of benefits to having an organized fall season. Coach, not a lot of people know this. You're a Newport native. And, Correct. And so how did you get involved with lacrosse growing up in, in Newport? I mean, the game obviously has exploded in Rhode Island now, but I'm sure it wasn't what it is today. You guys play on boats? How'd that work? <laughs> yeah, boat shoes with cleats. No, actually, we, I moved to Coventry when I was three or four years old. So I was born in Newport, but lived in southern Rhode Island growing up and uh, was introduced to the, the game of lacrosse when I, when I attended Providence Country Day. We were a pretty blue-collar family, but I... My mom worked at Providence Country Day in the administration, so we we were given free tuition. So we were allowed to to attend a great high school and a great middle school. So it was, it was seventh grade when we were driving by Moses Brown, and there was some youth lacrosse going on. And I remember my mom sort of pulled over, and I'd seen I was at I was at Providence Country Day, so I'd seen the varsity lacrosse team play a couple times, and she joined us in mini lacrosse right right on the spot right where we pulled up, and that's. The rest was history. So that, that's how I got involved in it. Was lucky enough that my mom worked at a school that supported it. Because I believe at the time, Providence Country Day was one of like eight schools in the state that were playing. It was a very private school 
league in Rhode Island. Now it's just great to see the growth. It's yeah. awesome to see the growth in Rhode Island. Coach, one of the places that you coached at before Colorado College and Amherst was Mars Hill. And Correct. due to my research, I have discovered that I have coached against you. Right. In 2006, I was an assistant coach at St. A's, St. Anselm, with uh, Jerry Byrne, who's the head coach at Harvard. And I remember that I remembered wrong. I thought we won that game. It was a spring break trip down, down to Mars Hill, and we lost 12 to 10, and we didn't score any goals in the fourth. So I want to put that out there. I always think it's weird. There's like weird connections that happen all the time in lacrosse, and that's one of them. I actually didn't even realize you were, you were a coach at Mars Hill, but that, that's, that's impressive. I, I think it's, you've built your career. You started out as a D1 assistant, and you've come through kind of the D3 ranks to, to one of the highest positions in Division Three, one of the most difficult schools to get a position at coaching athletics. How did that, like you played at Hartwick, which is a D3 school. How did you go from Hartwick to, to Brown and then kind of ascend through the ranks as you did? I was, I was really fortunate to have an opportunity at Brown. I, I graduated knowing that I wanted to, to coach at some level. Didn't really know how to get my foot in the door. Thankfully, one of my favorite people in the world was, was the assistant coach at Brown at the time, Mike Frioli, who's now the head coach at Moses Brown, high, the high school in, in Rhode Island. And I remember we went out to dinner because he had coached me at Hartwick a couple of years prior as an assistant coach under Coach Whipple. So we had a, a, he kept the relationship going from my Hartwick days. And I was living in Providence, working mutual funds, trying to find out how I was going to get a high school job or a, hopefully a college job. And Brioli asked me out to dinner. We, we grabbed dinner. And I was kind of asking, like, how, how did you get your foot in the door? How do I get my foot in the door? He's like, honestly, we have a volunteer job open. If I can get you an interview, would you take it? I said, absolutely. I interviewed that next Monday, got offered the job from Scott Nelson, and I gave my two weeks at the mutual fund because I knew I wasn't going to be able to do both. It was it was a difficult time in my, my career in, in a way that I had to wake up at six and fold pamphlets from six to 12 to make money so I could so I could coach. But it was an awesome time. I, I really, I cut my teeth there under Coach Nelson, Coach Frioli, Coach Finley. So that was a great transition for me and a great opportunity and then I've had different opportunities. Washington College was another great opportunity. Learning from J.B. Clark. He's one of my, my, my greatest mentors. I love that man. He's an awesome guy, awesome coach, great, greater person. So I learned a lot from him. And then the opportunity to become a head coach at Mars Hill came about, and, and it was an exciting one. And I think we, we did a lot of great things down there. I was fortunate enough to meet Richard Carrington, who's my current recruiting coordinator and defensive coordinator. Really, really fortunate to have him here at Amherst. That's where we, we started our coaching career together. He's an assistant for, for me down there. So a lot of great relationships throughout my coaching career that, that I've learned a lot from. And obviously, I'm really benefited by, by having the relationship with Richard here at, at Amherst. We're going to take a quick break, but there's more Chasing the Goal podcast on the way. All right, class, it's the NCAA Men's Lacrosse Championships. Welcome to Fandom 101. Want to hype up your squad from face-off to the final whistle? Here's your assignment. Lesson one, get loud for every goal. Two, work together. And three, attendance is encouraged, but passion is mandatory. The Men's Lacrosse Championships, May 27th and 29th at Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia. Buy your tickets today at NCAA.com slash mlacrosse. Class dismissed. All right, class, it's the NCAA Division I Women's Lacrosse Championship. Welcome to Phantom 101. Want to give your team the ultimate assist on the lax field? Here's your assignment. Lesson one, get loud for every goal. Two, work in groups. And three, attendance is encouraged, but passion is mandatory. The Division I Women's Lacrosse Championship, May 26th and 28th at Wake Med Soccer Park in Cary, North Carolina. Buy your tickets today at ncaa.com slash wlacrosse. Class dismissed. 
Dedication, skills, focus, and the drive to play at the highest level. Lachsachusetts is committed to providing the coaching and curriculum that will allow boys and girls to learn and grow as individuals and as teammates. With an emphasis on skill development and academic excellence, their players have led the country in college recruiting for the past 10 years. With over 800-plus players moving on to play in college and over 130-plus high school All-Americans, Lachsachusetts has been able to set the nationwide standard unmatched in the sport of lacrosse. To learn more, log on to laxachusetts.com. That's laxachusetts.com. Yeah, I, I always love talking to coaches about like the early days and like the other jobs they had to do to keep coaching. Jack, what's your what, what was something you did when you first started getting into coaching? What what's like a crazy job you had before before Warrior Brand? I used to collect cans. Get the really? five cents. Wow. Yeah, try and get some lunch money. I mean, I wasn't making any money. I mean, nothing. But you got to, like, people don't realize you got to do, like. I collected cans. Yeah, I, I strung sticks. Yeah. <laughs> like, if I didn't string sticks, stringing sticks paid part of my rent for over a decade. Like, literally, just over a decade. And let me tell you, the first batch of those was, were not good. <laughs> they, were, they were not good. But that kind of dedication doesn't it has to come from not not like necessarily desperation it sounds like that when you when you put it that way but it has to come from a place where you really see something that maybe other people don't see you've got like a mission that you have to accomplish and you're going to do these things on the side that maybe you don't like doing but you have to do them in order to get to the top of the mountain you have to climb certain ways and I, i'm i'm curious you folded pamphlets what else did you do coach bus boy folded pamphlets i was a bus boy I ran some clinics and individual lesson, whatever it took to, to, to keep doing the, the thing that I love to do. To Jack's point, I was, I was collecting cans as well. We did anything we could. Frozen pizza, mac and cheese. Yeah, you know? exactly. He learned to survive. Coach, we would have met at Brown because I was the Brian rep back in the day. I used to come in and, and meet with the coaches and show them the equipment, the heads and all, so on and so forth. We've had Mike Frioli on this podcast. Mike's, we're both big fans of Mike. Mike is a, a good, good man. And it's funny, sometimes you meet coaches and you lose track of them. And here you are at Amherst. And I remember those days at Brown and with Scott Nelson. And I, that's when I got to know Mike Frioli. And I've, I'm, I consider Mike a, a very good friend of mine. And knowing that you and Mike are very close, it's, it's just such a small, wonderful world that we, we live in. Absolutely, Jack. And I'm sure we, we could probably spend three hours on this podcast talking about people we, we connect with. But you're right about, about Mike. He's just a really quality human and, and a great coach and person that definitely I consider as a mentor to me. Coach, let's go back and kind of talk a little bit about last season. You started a little... I don't want to say auspiciously. It's just tough to play Tufts in the second game, no matter who you are, right? You beat Hamilton your first game, lose to Tufts. I think people were kind of like, okay, what's going on? That score is a little close. I remember watching that game just being like, oh, they're running. They're going to run with them. Most, most times I watch people play Tufts and I'm like, oh, they're going to run with them. They're, that's not going to go well. I watched another team do it and it didn't end well for them. And then you played Bates. I think that was kind of a the win that got everyone paying attention. And then you beat Gettysburg, who was ranked number 10 at the time, 18-14 in the next game. And then kind of a little slide there with, with a loss to, I'm not, I don't want to say it. Do you know you who they it. lost to? Springfield. Yeah. Correct. In overtime. It was, and, th and then number five, St. John's Fisher, and nothing really terrible about that. But then you beat Winnick, and I could go through your, your entire schedule, but it did seem like there were peaks and valleys 
And you were still able to navigate those peaks and valleys and win your last five games in a row and get into the, the NESCAC tournament and then eventually be selected to play against MIT in, in the first round. As a first year at a, at, a, at a school that hadn't played in two years, that's an insane season to go through. What, what were some of the, the things that got you through that? And what are some of the things that you remember from, from that, that struggle? I, I'd say struggle. Yeah, I, I remember we were four and five. We, we played our worst game down at Wesleyan that, that led us to a four and five record. And I remember getting off the bus and meet with my staff and we, we really weren't in panic mode. I know that sounds weird. Four and five at Amherst, but we really weren't. We knew we, we lost some really close games. So a couple overtime thrillers that we lost, didn't play our best against Wesleyan. We, we, but we knew we had a good group and we knew we had an attentive group that was really dedicated. So we talked as a staff about things we could do to make practices a little bit more competitive. A couple of things X's and O's wise that, that could help us get a couple more goals a game to close the gap. But our most important meeting was with our leadership council, like the following, we met as a group and, and it was, I thought it was, I was walking into a room where I was going to have to talk them off a ledge or tell them like, Hey guys, this is how we're going to save our season. And, and honestly, like they had the same confidence and wherewithal that we as coaches had, like we knew we had a good group. We just had to figure out how to like score a couple more goals and how to keep it a couple more goals off the scoreboard. So. We talked with them about riding a little differently. We, we installed a little bit more of an aggressive ride. We introduced a couple diff, couple more transition patterns into our early offense. We decided to mix in a little bit more zone defensively and be a little more multiple on that end of the field. And the guys were really bought into that process. That it was like some of those ideas came from them actually. So when we hit that practice field, we had sort of a new energy, like we did like in the, the previous fall and came together as a group. And, and I, I was really proud of the way we finished the season, beating Williams and obviously losing a really tough one goal game to Bowden in the semis that eventually allowed us to, to get selected in the tournament. Coach, I give you a lot of credit for getting feedback from your coaches. I mean, your players rather. Is that something you've always done? Is, is it your captains you get some feedback from in terms of maybe Maybe the coaches aren't doing a very good job, or maybe we're not seeing things that our players are seeing, and we need to make some changes. Let's let's try a zone. Let's be more aggressive on the the ride. Let's you know push a little more transition situations. Is that something you've always done as a coach? Yeah, at Colorado College, I did. I I, I inherited a a very like smart group, and as I got more confidence in my relationships there, I realized I'd be doing the program a disservice if I didn't involve our actual constituents in some of the decisions that were being made. But when I came here, yeah, I brought that same sort of energy and organization pattern where we, we, we do engage our guys and we empower our guys, but not just with our leadership council that has first years, sophomores, juniors, seniors. We do have captains as well. We have committees amongst the team too. So off the field, we've got a diversity equity inclusion committee. We've got a community engagement committee. We even have a branding committee that designs our gloves and our helmet decals. We, it's, it's a, it's a very strong philosophy of mine that you have to engage your players in developing the culture. Otherwise they're not going to be as bought in. And when you have a player that takes ownership over the program, that's a very strong relationship to have with, with, with the team. In terms of your branding committee, do you have freshmen, sophomore, juniors, and seniors on it? All four classes? Correct. All, all our committees, all our task forces are represented across the board. We, we think it's really important to get our, our players involved early. And we want to show the team that it doesn't matter whether you're a senior or, or first year, you're, you have a voice in this program. 
Yeah, I think one of the things watching you guys play beginning of the season to the end of the season, I think the first game I watched was the Bates game, which is at Stevenson, the Stevenson Classic, the Mustang Classic at Stevenson. Correct. Correct. Yep. Yeah, I think, you know, you love shooting. You've got this team, Jack, for, for reference, this team last year had four kids take almost 550 shots. Four kids. I, I've never seen I don't remember the last time I saw anything like that. And that's why you were able to run with teams like Tufts and, and to kind of overwhelm teams like, like Bates in that game. And I, I remember watching that game just being like, whoa, they're just going. And, and I think you were talking about some of the adjustments you made. And I think it was pretty apparent, especially I know the MIT game is probably going to not leave a great taste in your mouth, but that was an incredible game. They were down early and came all the way back. And really, the goalie made two saves in the final minute. You guys had the shot. Like, you... Man, you, you were able to manufacture chances. What are some of the ways that you were able to do that besides, obviously, your early offense in that Bates game? It was just straight up early offense. Like, we got a matchup. We're going to go. We're going to take it to this guy. If they slide, we're dumping it. We're working through X, and we're getting a shot. Like, that, that was very apparent to me. But what are some of the things you did after the adjustment to maybe, like, mitigate some of the, the, the transition that could happen if, if you don't score? Yeah, I mean, there's more, more or less like our settled stuff. Is that yeah. what you're asking about, yes. Kyle? Yes. Yeah, I know. We we incorporate a lot more, a lot more two man game in the second half of our season. We've got we've got a big lefty attack in Brock Gonzalez. It's it's a pretty dangerous situation for the opponent's defense if you're setting a pass down, pick down with with that young man. And we have a really dynamic playmaker in Tanner Krumenacker from X. So we started to set some goal line picks for him. We had PJ Clemente was our other attackman. He's really, really good refusing picks as well as the feeding slips. So I think we just put a little more focus in our two-man game when it comes to our settled set. But we also we also have some dynamic midfielders, and we started playing with the drift a lot. We really, really were an alley-dodging team to start the season, and we really wanted to, to incorporate a lot more sweeping. And our guys were just so inclined to getting out of the way of the sweep that we really had to enforce some hard, fast rules with our drift and leaving that guy in space. So if they overshow or if they rotate adjacent, we can play that that two-man game in front of you with the drift guy. So I would say overall, just our overall two-man games up the ante a little bit and allowed us to be a little bit more dangerous in the settled set. Yeah, the balance was was incredible high-low as well. I think that really like put, pulled defenses apart. They would kind of try to slide early, and then if that didn't work, because they had a ton of guys that, that could pass. I mean, I mentioned all those all those shots, but you got two guys with with 25 assists in this group. I mean, and, and one of them is a midfielder knocker. So yeah, it was, have you always been an offensive focused coach? I, I know that that kind of was your, your title when you were an assistant early on and you helped out with goalies as well. What is your offensive philosophy and how has it changed now that there's, there's a shot clock? Cause you were coaching before the shot clock. Sure. Yeah. I think my, I mean, my philosophy has changed over the years and any good coach would tell you that your philosophy from an X and O standpoint has to change seasonally based upon your personnel. Yeah. So, but, but generally speaking, I, I would consider myself to, to, to run an offense that's multiple. I think we have really smart players that like to learn. I like to be varied. So we have a lot of offenses, a lot of different ways of doing things, a lot of variations in every offense that we have. I also, I, I really preach creativity. I don't have a lot of rules when it comes to our offense. I like to have outlets on both sides of the ball. I like to have backup at X, but I really think once you draw that slide or, or make that initial dodge, you need to give your players the freedom to to, to take chances and, and move without the ball creatively. And and I think that's that's something that I've always been a big advocate for. And I've coached defense for a number of years. 
currently I'm, I'm fortunate to have, in my opinion, the best defensive coordinator in the country and Richard Carrington. So I can really focus on the offense, which is, which is great. I think, and, and it's, it just allowed me to, to, to be a little bit more creative with, with our, our X's and O's with our personnel. And I'm really excited about this year because last year I inherited a pretty small group. There's only 36 players on the roster. We were pretty thin at the midfield. We, we really only played one midfield and had a second midfield just to spell those guys. We really only played two, sometimes three defensive middies where this year we're going to have two, maybe three midfield lines, four defensive middies. We're going to be a lot deeper on the defensive end. I think our attack group's a lot stronger, even though we lost a really good one in P.J. Clemente. So I think we're going to be even more multiple and certainly up the tempo a little bit more this year too. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England lacrosse? New England Lacrosse Journal and LaxJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England lacrosse scene. Have every issue of New England Lacrosse Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to LaxJournal.com to receive daily digital lacrosse coverage on club lacrosse, college commits, prep and high school, Division I, II, and three colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by logging on to LaxJournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Lacrosse Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. This winter, Piatelli Lacrosse has a great way for you to stay in shape and play lacrosse. Kyle, yes. Starting in January, we have box lacrosse leagues for youth and high school. Players of all ages at two convenient locations in Agawam and Taunton, Massachusetts. The up-tempo pace of box lacrosse is an excellent way for players to learn to play faster and develop new skills that will make you more effective on the field in the spring. And coaches will be provided for each game, and all players will take part in mini clinic prior to the game where we will work on different box lacrosse skills. Make the most of your offseason, play some box lacrosse. This program is open to all interested players. For more information on our Winter Box League, visit www.piatellilacrosse.com. I think that's one of the things that, that I've noticed. I mean, we're, we're taping this right after the beginning of the D1 season, and, and Vermont just lost to Syracuse, right? It was a close game, 7-5. It went up to the Dome. And uh, one of the things watching that game, it's pretty apparent that they don't have any rules either. And sometimes that can get the better of you when, when the defenses come and double quick or they double your back or they slide quick or they, they, they're slow to go and they hold on the two. That sort of freedom is you have to have a group of players that really understand how to make that work. And, and it, it's interesting to me that, that you say that, like the kind of like the positionless lacrosse philosophy, right? Which I, I've been on record on this podcast. I don't like it because I think that there are different skill sets and I think you should be able to do that, but very few players can do it at the level they're at. They can do it at lower levels just fine. But how do you teach the responsibility of that freedom? Because I think that's the key component every time you're doing a free-flowing offense or an offense that doesn't rely on a set, right? Like if you're not like, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the Springfield set? Deuces? You ran deuces since you were playing? That's all they run? It's the biggest pain ever to teach. But then everyone else, when you're at lower levels, everyone runs a 2-3-1. Everyone runs a 1-4-1. When we talk about positionless lacrosse, we don't talk about formations. But how do you teach the 
responsibility of being free to the players, especially in a system like yours, which is free shooting. And if you have a good look, you always take it. Yeah, I think it starts with the the overarching theme of being unselfish, or doing things for the offense, not doing things for yourself. That's something that thankfully we have a very humble group here at Amherst, a very unselfish, hardworking group, as I mentioned before. So you have to start with that. You, you, it, it would not work if you have one of those guys on the field that's looking out for number one. It just would not work. So it starts and ends there. And then you have to you have to coach decision making. You know, that that's done a, a billion different ways on the field in the moment. We do a lot of film around here individually as well as collectively within smaller groups as well. And you have to coach shot selection. I think it's a really undercoached thing in our sport. You have to coach shot selection. And now that we have the shot clock, there's a different dynamic there. You have to you have to coach shot selection and clock. And I think we focused pretty heavily on that last year. We got our players involved. Sometimes we would do surveys where we would look at all 58 shots that we took in that game and we would have guys rank what type of shot that was, whether it was a great shot, a good shot, or a bad shot. And and having them involved in that process would really helped us, especially after that Bowden game where we took a the first Bowden game where we just took a lot of poor shots. So I think th- those are a lot of different ways of mitigating it. But I think it starts and ends with having an unselfish group that's humble, doesn't matter who scores as long as we score. And, and you also need a, need a group that knows how to get out of trouble and knows how to balance the field. We have a hand grenade rule here where if, if a hand grenade can blow up more than one of you, you probably aren't well-spaced off ball. So that's another thing we that, that, that helps us coach off-ball positioning. So all these kind of different things can, can help us, but starts and ends with, with the type of group you have. You have to have a very unselfish group to play creative, uninhibited lacrosse. I love that. Hand grenade rule. Gonna, gonna steal that, coach. Gonna steal it. Well, free. I, I probably stole from somebody else. Your coaches go. <laughs> Yeah, we're not very original. Coach, do, do you have do you have an extra one for the studio? <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> so so brutal. He yeah. waits all podcasts and then he just like a little tight. You guys are a little close together there. Yeah. yeah, you're you're breaking the hand grenade rule. <laughs> one of my quotes, Coach, is there is no perfect shot. It's the perfection in the shot that counts. Love it, love it. And what I mean by that, I think, and you're teaching that too, is. So many players, you know, want that perfect shot. And there's no such thing as a, as a perfect shot. But when you shoot, it's got to be a quality shot in terms of getting it on a cage, fundamentally over the top, snap the wrist, be in front of the cage, read and react to what the defense is doing. Are you getting double teamed? Can you dish it off? Right. And I, I love that philosophy in terms of just, you know, play the game, read and react. What's the defense doing, right? Where, where, the, where are the slides coming? Where are the second slide coming? Instead of, oh, we're going to run this play. All right. And all right, if it doesn't work, we're going to try this play. Mm-hmm. And the two-man game teaches that so so much better than anything else is being able to read and react. Totally agree. And you have to know who you are. I mean, obviously, everyone has different ranges and different ways to release the ball, and where they are in the field, to, to what type of shot they want to take. So you have to know who you are and, I think we do a good job of helping that as well at, in our individual meetings, making sure they understand their range, making sure they understand what's a more effective shot for that individual. Coach, let's look at your schedule coming up. You you start March 4th with a trip to Hamilton. I'm looking at your out-of-conference. You added York, who's at, at the Stevenson at the Mustang Classic. That's a very good team, perennially top five every year. It's a, it's a 
good ad for you guys if, if you can manage to, to win that. And then the rest of the schedule, I mean, you don't have a lot of freedom. So it's really just rematches with everybody from last year. How much of your out of conference schedule is able to be scheduled by you? Because the, the NESCAC's huge. I mean, you're playing 10 games. So how much freedom do you have to navigate that? And how do you place teams that, that you want to play into that kind of mix? We don't have a ton of, of, of freedom. We only get one bye weekend in the NESCAC. That's when we're playing St. John Fisher. So all our other out-of-conference games have to be local because we can't miss class here at Amherst. And right. something I'm a big, big advocate for, I don't want to ever pull a guy out of class for a game or anything. I think it's really important to, to send that message that it's academics first around here. So we, we need to, we need to put shop locally for teams like Western New England and Springfield. And I know years ago they used to play Endicott. So, so that's kind of where we are because it has to be a midweek game. So really it's a spring break. So obviously we get the opportunity to go down and play Bates in York, but all the other teams with the exception of St. John Fisher have to be within a couple hours because we can't miss class. That's really a unique situation you're in because all the teams are in New England, right? You can't miss any classes, but you're in probably, if not one of the best conferences, Division One, Two, II, and Three in the country, and they're, they're all in your neighborhood, which is pretty special. It's awesome. I, I, I love it. And Kyle mentioned it a little bit before, being at Colorado College and not really having any consistency to the schedule, which, which lacks rivalries. Here, it's the exact opposite. You, you play the same teams every year, there's rivalries, there's bad blood, but at the same time, it's a really professional conference. When the last whistle blows, you shake that coach's hand and, and you smile because you know him well and you, you trust him. They're all good people up here. I, I really love the, the coaches in this conference and you know, there's a, a shared respect amongst all of us. And, and even when the players are done, I mean, a lot of them know each other and, and when, the, when it's over, it's over. But when in between whistles, it's, it's a war and every game is a battle. I mean, you look at the, the quote unquote bottom of the NESCAC, those are good teams. Those are very, very good lacrosse teams. So I've, I've really enjoyed the transition of coming from it as an independent where you don't really have any rivalries or, or any, any opportunity to, to play a, a team year after year. So it's, it's been an awesome transition and super competitive. It's such good lacrosse. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, good competition makes you better. Or, or you'll, you'll be outside looking in, right? Yeah. Right? Iron sharpens iron, right? Yeah. That's, that's how you do it. I mean, even, even Hamilton, who I think for a long time has kind of been one of those teams out the outside looking in, had a great season last year. And, and that's a tough team now. Like there's no, like Jack said, there's no easy out, man. Like the, if you're not ready in the NESCAC, you're going to punch in the mouth. Coach, it was my junior year. Funny story. We beat Amherst maybe by one or two. And I think we lost one of my first two years. But we were going through the line, shaking the players' hands, and they were all upset they'd lost to us, and they were saying to us as we were going through the line, I know you guys beat us today, but don't worry, you'll be working for us someday. <laughs> I thought that was the greatest <laughs> quote to all the players. And it's obviously a lot smarter than we were, for sure. But it was a great quote by the Amherst players that we'd be working for them someday. You wouldn't hear my players saying anything like that. We were a classy group. Exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't I, expect it either, but you know, that say, was a long time ago. Listen, it, I don't get a lot of opportunities that other people don't get, right? Like I, I get to go to games just like everyone else. Sometimes I get to go on the sidelines. Sometimes I can sneak there. Sometimes the coaches want me there, all that stuff. The best chirps I've ever heard in my life. And coach, you're, you're, you're good with this because you weren't the coach then. The best chirps I ever had, ever heard were Tufts Amherst games. Like 2018, 2019, 
that was that was some wild stuff. There were some things being said that we could never say on this podcast that were made out of competitive fire. And I, I think that kind of mentality is what I, I think people look at the NESCAC and they go, all right, all these all these kids, all these smart kids are huge. They can all go play D1, but they chose NESCACs. They have good grades and blah, blah, blah. And they they make up excuses why NESCAC gets so many good players, I think. Personally, just covering the sport, everyone, if you're not a NESCAC person or an Ivy League person, you kind of go like, oh, well, they just stole our guys and they're so, because it's, it's, it's Amherst, right? Or it's, uh, it's, it's Colby. It's, it's one of, every school is such a high academic level. And we had Coach Rabe on here. He talks about, talked about the rigor a lot. And I think that what those people are missing is that it's not easy at an SCAC to be a student athlete. It's not easy, man. Like you actually are kind of struggling sometimes to get your work done on time and to handle the, the academic load. When you're recruiting players, how many times do you have to kind of go back to the academic piece as an integral part of that process? Very frequently. We, we talk about it a lot. And especially here at Amherst, where the, the culture is to, to, to double major. Most of our players will walk away from Amherst with two majors because of our open curriculum. So it's a recruiting tool, but it's also can be a challenge because you know, it's a lot more commitment to your academics when you have two areas of study as opposed to one. And then you are a varsity athlete and we have a, we have four two sport athletes. So imagine the, the life balance they might struggle with, but we, we, we do, we do meet with our players a lot. We have a lot of resources as a college, a ton of resources as a college and as and a ton of resources departmentally, but in the recruiting game, we, we have to make sure that, that our guys are, are up for the challenge. We, they need to understand that they, they can't just be great lacrosse players. They have to be great committed students. They have to be great, committed people off the field. They have to love their family. There's, there's a lot that goes into being an Amherst lacrosse player that is more than just shooting the ball 100 miles an hour. And I think we need to make sure that we are drilling down on these recruits to, to make sure they have the character and the, the work ethic you need to be successful here. But I will say when our guys get here, they're very successful. We just had our, we have a 3.58 GPA Q as a team. No one's struggling as far as no one's below the 3.3 range. So we've got a really strong, committed team, but you need to make sure you recruit that because they have to know what they're getting into and you have to know what type of kid you're getting too. So it's a two-way street. Yeah. Being in the club business, we get a lot of players and parents for school. They talk about, oh yeah, looking at NESCACs and they use it, they use it so casually. Yeah. Oh, looking at NESCACs, yeah, NESCACs, one, you got to get in, which is very, 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 very difficult. Yeah. And two, can you handle the workload? Like you said, coach, it's very impressive that you have young men who are getting two majors while playing at a top level, like lacrosse and some athletes, two sport athletes in two majors. I mean, that that's, you've got some very impressive individuals in your program. Yeah, no question. They, they really are. And they, they work really hard at it. It doesn't always come easy here because it's a very challenging school with a ton of rigor. But again, they have the resources and they have the relationships with the faculty, even with their teammates, if they need extra help. And certainly the culture here is my door is always open. Come in if you're struggling, we'll, we'll get you help. And I, I think our guys utilize that a lot. They understand that I'm not going to yell at them. I'm not going to come down on them. I'm going to make a phone call to our faculty athletic liaison and get you. And I think that level of trust is is great because we don't have study hall here. I don't, I don't, I'm not a believer in it. I think you, you have to trust your players to, to go out and be great academic people and and they need to trust you that if they are struggling, they'll come in and let you know. And I think that that's the culture here is, is really strong in that way. 
Coach, do you find proximity-wise, because you're in New England, obviously you're at a great institution, that you have more inquiries from players wanting to be recruited at Amherst than, than like a Colorado college, just based on the proximity and in, in, in the, the situation? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think a lot of a lot of Northeast people will just cross Colorado College out because they just want to be a little closer to home. And it's there's, there's a lot of reasons why we're the, we're the only Division three team in the entire country, or excuse me, in the entire time zone out in Colorado. So there was, there was certainly some challenges there that we don't have here at Amherst. And I think there are a lot more emails, a lot more calls, which is great. I, I love it. It's, it's a really, really good opportunity to recruit nationally and something we did at, at Colorado College as well. But but here we we really are looking for a geographic diversity. Our school does a great job with diversity of all kinds. And I, I think that's something we focus on. We're not going to just go go recruit a kid from Washington because he's from Washington State. But but I do think it's intriguing to to be able to pull from all areas of the country. And I think when you've got different states represented on a lacrosse field, there's a lot of different personalities and a lot of different types of play that I think resonates in a really positive way. Coach, I got a bit of a bone to pick with you. I think you know what it is. I think you know what, what it is. Is my roster? It's your roster, man. Why are all the NESCAC schools just like, nah, we're not putting up a roster. We don't need coverage from the media. How dare you? I, I'm teasing, but like, I need it. Please give it to me. It's February 6th when we're taping this and your, your 22 roster is up. And I actually, I put this out on Twitter. I was very annoyed by it. It, it was most of my, tw- and people don't understand this. You're listening to the podcast. You don't follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at the Kyle Devitt. It's tongue in cheek most like 89% of the time. Okay. I'm trying, I'm trying to make a joke out of it. I'm trying to make it funny, but like, I actually needed this this year to, to prep for all the things that, I, that I'm doing. And, and the Bates athletics Twitter came out and was like, oh, well we have tryouts. I'm like, oh, really? The, the, a NESCAC team that has a limited number of kids they can bring in to be commits. Can't put the commits on the website. Okay. I see. I see. You want to give other people a chance, but I want to hear why you think NASCAC, not necessarily your team, other NASCAC teams don't put their 2023 roster up in February. I want to know. I'll, I'll send you our roster when we get off the Zoom here, Kyle. So I'll, yes. so you'll have, I don't know. It might be the sports information directors. I don't want to put it up till the season starts. A lot of it can be out of the coach's hands. I know that our, our roster has been sent over to sports information. So I think it's, it's, it's probably school by school, but I, I don't, I, I don't really care. I mean, it doesn't bother me. I think we all know who's on everybody's roster. So there's not really any competitive advantage because we're all recruiting the same kids in a lot of ways. So I, I don't really see any competitive advantage. So I, I think it just may, might have to do with communications. Yeah. I, I think some, sometimes like p- people in lacrosse do this sometimes where it looks like, oh, well, Bill Belichick doesn't have to post his roster to a certain date, so I'll just hold it. I like that kind of school of thinking. And I'm not saying that you're doing that, but the thing is, like with the COVID now, like everyone's got that extra year kind of, some places that gave the kids two years, is it just makes covering the sport much harder if I don't have a hard line. This guy's on my team. He's playing. Like I, I didn't know. I, I assumed PJ Clemente wasn't coming back. But I didn't know. I, I think that's like, if, I, if anyone's listening to this podcast, it's an SID, Sports Information Director. Please just put the roster up. If, if, even if you don't put the, the freshman, I don't care. Just tell me who's coming back and then we can deal with it. You know what I mean? Like, I know that's not like the message you want to send out on the podcast where you're being featured, but I, I just gotta, I gotta put it out there because 
covering lacrosse is important. Being able yeah. to write about lacrosse is my job, first of all. But second of all, I want to do it well. I, want, I don't want to guess. I want to know. I want to see a name. I want to know where you're from. I want to go back. I want to research you. I want to see your highlights on YouTube. I want to see everything I possibly can. So when you step on the field, finally, maybe it's not even this year. Maybe you're coming back or you're not sure you're transferring. I want to know everything. So it's in the player's interest. It's in the coach's interest. It's in selfishly my interest. And it's really in like the interest of the game in general to be able to have as much information as possible to be able to cover it. And, and I will say, I'll follow that up with a, co a compliment for the NESCACs. The NESCACs always have a stream. All of them. Every game is streamed. I love that. Especially you're going down to the Mustang Classic again. One of the best events in Division Three lacrosse. It takes place on the campus of Stevenson College University in Maryland. And it's a lot, it's several NESCAC teams and top ranked teams from around the country go and play in this, in that, in that second weekend in March. And I think it's, there's a good thing and a bad, bad thing to balance that out. But I, I appreciate that coach. Thank you very much. And I will, now that I have met you virtually, I feel comfortable asking for it. So that's good. I think, I think we as NESCAC coaches hit a nerve there, Kyle. That, that was a, quite the rant. You did. I, I was mad. I was, I was mad, but you know, that's part that coach. It might be like you go out, go out on the field and not have any lacrosse balls. It's, that's, it is. That's, 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 that's it. That's a great his, analogy. Look you. at you with analogies. I, I, rushed it. That was good. huh? Yes. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I really do appreciate all that you do, Kyle, though. It's really impressive. And, and you're really, you're highlighting division three athletes and athletics. And it's, it's amazing what, what you've been able to do and what you're doing. So I, we, we really are are thankful and grateful to have you in, in Division Three in our corner. I, lo I love covering Division Three, and when I write my book, I have a treatment for it. I'll, uh, I'll definitely call you up for it, because I think it's, Division well, Three is incredible. Yeah, yeah, we're all Division Three guys, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's something about Division Three. It's in your blood. Oh, you, it's in your blood. You yeah. fight for it, though, yeah, man. Yeah, like, that's the thing. Like some great players. A lot of great players. In the so many great players. Very successful. I mean, you can see all the guys that transferred out to play D1 this year. I mean, it's... It's an incredible avenue. You're in the best league in D3. I mean, it, it's we're all very lucky to be doing what we're doing. Coach, and last think, question. Oh, go, go ahead. With Division Three, I mean, like, no one's getting scholarships. It's You talk about passion. You talk about energy, excitement. We, we, we did it because we loved it. And, and I think that's that's the, the greatest thing about it. And, and it's funny, like, sometimes we have to remind recruits, like, we want to win on game day just as much as Maryland and Syracuse and Virginia, like, just because we're Division Three doesn't mean we're any less competitive. So I think it's, I totally agree. I, I love that you guys are D3 guys, and I think we, we share that passion. And I think the process for the parents and the players that end up at Division Three schools, 99% of the time, they select the right academic and athletic college university. And you don't see many guys leaving Division Three schools where you see more leaving Division One. In a lot of cases, because they made a bad decision going yeah. to that school and not selecting the right school in terms of fit academically and athletically. Or level. I would say level. Level. Right. Yeah. yeah you see it all the time. You, you do. And it, and it can be a shame, especially with all the transfer portal and fifth years going on. There's a lot of movement and it, it can be, it can be pretty almost distracting at, at times. Well, coach. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate you giving us some time and listening to my rant, which I'm sure will be cut down in post-production, hopefully for my sake, because I sound a little manic on it. <laughs> but, and we want to thank you again for listening to New England Cross Journals, Chasing the Gold Podcast. For Jack Piatelli, I'm Kyle Devitt. We'll see you next time.